Thanks for joining us for another great message from Futures Church Australia. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, blesses you and brings you joy. For more information about our church, go online to futures.church. And now for our message. Last Sunday, we talked around the subject of faith that remains, faith that remains. And we talked about the fact that um, often in, in church, we talk about faith for the miraculous and faith for the suddenly or the sudden intervention of God. And I love that. I love that we're part of a, a community that believes in the power of God. But last week, we talked about how sometimes we also need the faith to endure in seasons where the suddenly isn't coming. <laughs> we're not experiencing that. We need faith that remains. Well, today, I wanna follow along a little bit on that theme to this morning, but I wanna talk to you about another side of faith, what I call faith that stands up. Faith that stands up. 2 Corinthians 5.15, it says this. It says, He died for all so that all who live, having received eternal life from Him, might live no longer for themselves, to please themselves, but to spend their lives pleasing Christ who died and rose again for them. Now, I have a confession to make to you this morning. And some, a few people know this already, but I, I like decaf coffee. I know, I know, two of you are like, some of you are like decaf and coffee, they don't go together. But I like decaf coffee. And I have my reasons for that. We won't go into that right now. But I, I like decaf coffee. But a few years ago, I was a little bit ashamed of telling people that I like decaf coffee. It wasn't as accepted back then as it is today, right? Now we have all sorts of coffee. You know, you can order all sorts of weird and wonderful things uh, at the cafe. But back then, you know, if I'd go up to the, the counter, I was with a group of my mates or some friends, you know, I'd, I'd put my coffee order in and I'd say like, can I please have a decaf coffee, right? Because all my mates would pay me out, give me a hard time. Like, what do you mean, decaf coffee? What's wrong with you? You know, like, and, uh, and so, but now... I'm proud to say I like decaf coffee. And in fact, I even drink instant decaf coffee, right? I know, I know you, I've changed your perspective of me, right? I remember when I was in the, the Air Force, um, at the end of a working week or um, we'd be on exercise, like some of, some of the guys that I worked with, they would offer me a drink at the end of the day, offer me a beer or a spirit or something. And I'd say, look, hey, thanks so much, but I actually don't drink. And they'd be like, they couldn't believe it. Like, they're like, what do you mean you don't drink? Like, what's, what's wrong with you? Is there something like, what's the deal? And, uh, you know, I just said, you know, like, it's not really, I just don't need it, I'm, I'm all good. And, um, but they just couldn't get over it. And they'd sort of, sometimes they'd give me a bit of a hard time about it, but most of the time they were okay. But I, it got to a point where I was like, you know, I just pray, God, just don't let them offer me anything so we don't have to go through this each time. It happens, you know. And I was thinking about this, I'm thinking, you know what, it's not, a really a, it's not really a big deal if people don't know, if you don't want to share that you drink decaf coffee, right? Or you don't want to share that you, whatever it might be. But it is a problem when we apply that same thinking to confessing our faith. Because if we can't confess our faith to others, or worse still, if we deny that we're a follower of Jesus, not only can that negatively affect us, but it can also see others stop from coming to know Jesus too. In the fourth century, around 320 AD, there was a Roman emperor by the name of Lucinius who ruled over the eastern part of the Roman Empire. 
The thing about Licinius is that he hated Christians. And in fact, he wanted to eradicate them out of the land that he ruled over. And so he made a decree. And the decree was, if you were found to be a Christian, that you had to immediately renounce your faith and worship him in the Roman or the pagan Roman gods. And so he put this decree together and then he sent it out into the land. And one of the places that he sent this decree out was to his own army. He didn't want to have any Christians in his own army. And so this decree went out to his army and it reached a troop within his army called as the Thundering Legion. And the Thundering Legion were basically like the special forces of the day. They were the best of the best fighters that he had. And so when the commanding officer received this decree, he called the, the Thundering Legion together. He read out the decree and then he asked, are any of you Christians? And to, to his surprise, 40 of his best men stepped forward and said, yes, we are indeed Christian. Upon seeing this, the, the commanding officer, he, he was a little bit taken back. And, and so he said, well, here's the decree. You need to immediately renounce your faith, worship the emperor and the pagan gods of Rome. However, history records that all 40 of them completely refused to do so. Now, when questioned as to why, they refused to renounce their faith. They said, because we will not betray our holy faith. So their commanding officer, he's, he didn't, he's, doesn't quite know what to do, but he's like, but I need you guys to renounce your faith. And so he starts to offer them some bribes. He offers them money. He offers them promotions. He offers them even special favour with the emperor. Yet still, all 40 of them refused. Now the commanding officer, he's absolutely furious, not only because they're refusing the decree, but also refusing to follow his order. And so immediately he orders them to be stripped of their military rank. And he has them dragged outside into the freezing cold where they're flogged, they're brutally tortured, and they're eventually thrown into a prison cell. And yet still, none of the 40 renounce their faith. It says, it says that by now the Roman hierarchy, they're, they're, they get wind of what's happening. And so they say, well, we're gonna step in and we're gonna make these guys renounce their faith. They said, I want you to get all the guys and we're gonna go out to this frozen lake. And so they take them to the edge of this frozen lake and then they give these 40 guys this instruction. They say, you are to stand naked in the middle of this frozen lake and you are to remain there until you agree to renounce your faith and worship our gods. It just so happened this, this winter was ex extremely cold or excessively cold than normal. And so the Roman hierarchy is thinking, well, they're only gonna be out there for a minute or two and then they're immediately gonna say, okay, we renounce our faith and so they can get reprieve. Amazingly, however, the report was that the 40 soldiers, when they were given that instruction, that many of them voluntarily stripped off and started marching out into the middle of the lake shouting things such as we are soldiers of the Lord and we fear no hardship. And what is our death but an entrance into eternal life? It is said that the 40 men stood there in the middle of the lake, clinging to each other physically, but also spiritually, encouraging one another to persevere, to suffer courageously to the very end. According to historical records, the soldier's prayer was this, Lord, there are 40 of us engaged in this battle. Grant that 40 may be crowned and not one missing from this number. Now, if being naked and standing in the middle of a frozen lake 
in the middle of winter wasn't bad enough, what the Roman hierarchy decided to do to try to lure them out of the lake and to get them to renounce their faith is they set up fires around the edge of the lake and also warm baths. And they figured surely that's gonna tempt them to renounce their faith and leave the group. However, it's said that the 40 soldiers huddled themselves together even more, praying, God has ordained us to be brothers in this life. Let us pray that we may have the strength to be brothers unto eternity. And we pray, O Lord, that this sacred number of 40 of us will not be broken and that each of us will earn our crowns tonight. Unfortunately, as the night went on, in the middle of the night, the lure of the warm baths and the fires attracted one of them. And one of the 40 started to pull himself away from the group and make his way towards the edge of the lake. The other 39, they they tried as best they could to, to encourage him to stay, to hold on to the very end, but it was too late. He'd already made up his mind. He renounced his faith, made his way to the edge of the lake where he was celebrated and welcomed him to a warm bath. Unfortunately, the change in temperature was too brutal for his body. He went into convulsions and he died immediately. Now, earlier in the night, there was another soldier who was on the edge of the lake who was, sat, who was set there to watch over the 40. And it said that while he was on the edge of the lake watching over the 40, that he had a vision. And in this vision, he saw an angel coming down and putting crowns on the 40 men who were in the middle of the frozen lake. And the vision impacted him so powerfully that he realised that their faith was genuine and he was amazed that they were willing to lay down their life for their faith. And so when he saw that one gentleman that, that break away from the group and denounce his faith, it said that he, he was overcome and so he voluntarily stripped off all his clothes, threw down his armour, began running into the middle of the lake confessing that he too was a follower of Jesus. And so their number was 40 again, just as they prayed it would be. It says, when the sun finally rose on the next day, it's recorded that all 40 of the men lay motionless on the ice. Despite all they faced, all they came up against, all that was trying to force them to renounce their faith, these 40 soldiers had died with their confession in Jesus intact. They'd become known as the 40 martyrs of Sebaste. Pretty amazing, right? Now, as I read that recently, I was so incredibly challenged by it because I couldn't help to wonder what would I have done? Who in that story would I have been? Would I have been someone when they heard that decree, immediately renounced my faith because I was fearful of what might happen to me? Would I have been the one guy who tried to stick it out as long as possible, but got to a point where it was just too tough, so I just renounced my faith and gave in? Or would I be like one of those who remained, whose faith stood up? You know, I think all of us would like to say that we would, we would be like those who remained. We'd be like those who remained in the middle of the ice that did not renounce our faith but would we? Are we? 
Or is there a limit to our confession? You know, if, if you were to ask Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, who he would have been, he would have told you unequivocally, I will be one, like one of those ones who stays on the ice, who dies for my faith. In, in fact, he even told Jesus that was the case. In John chapter 13, Jesus is engaged in a conversation with his disciples and he's, as he's talking to his disciples, he's telling them that he was about to be arrested and to leave them, to go to the Father. And they're like, they're a little bit confused about what Jesus is saying. They don't quite understand like when he talks about he's going away. And so Peter interrupts Jesus and, and he says to Jesus, but Lord, where are you going? And Jesus understands that Peter's, what Peter's actually wanting to, to do is to go with him. And so Jesus says to Peter, well, listen, you can't go with me now, but you can follow me there later. And then Peter says to Jesus, but why can't I come with you now, Lord? I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus pauses for a moment. He looks straight at Peter and he says to him, die for me. Are you sure, Peter? Because I tell you the truth, tomorrow morning, before the rooster even crows, you'll actually deny three times that you even know me. The Bible tells us that five chapters later in John chapter 18, which is actually only a few hours after this conversation has taken place, that Jesus is arrested. Romans come to arrest him, take him away, and he's about to face trial, which would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. We're told that as they take Jesus away, that John and Peter follow closely behind. When they get to the high court where Jesus would be put on trial, John is allowed to go into the high court, but Peter has to remain outside by himself. It says after a little while that John goes up to the servant girl who's in charge of the entrance to the courtyard and he says to her, hey, do you think you could let my friend Peter who's outside by himself Come in. And she's like, sure, no problem. So she goes over to the door and she looks out and she sees Peter standing there by himself and she sort of ushers him to come over. As he makes his way over, she's looking at him and then she starts to look a little bit more intently. And she says, hey, hey hang on. Haven't I seen you before? Aren't you one of those disciples that was with Jesus? And as Peter's standing there alone, suddenly he's gripped with fear of what will happen if he says yes. And so he looks at the girl and he says, me, nah, you must have me mistaken. I'm definitely not one of those disciples. And so she lets Peter into the courtyard. And as Peter enters that courtyard, he's confronted with seeing Jesus on trial. And I can imagine there was this sudden wave of disappointment that comes over Peter as he realised he's just denied the one that not only did he say that he loved, but who was about to lay down his life for him. I can almost see Peter having a moment where he's speaking to himself saying, why did I say no? Why did I deny Christ? Why did I do that? What, oh, that's so, why did I do that? You know what? Next time, next time I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna make up for it. If someone asks me next time, I'm gonna tell them straight out, yes, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, a little while later on the same day, 
The Bible tells us that in the courtyard where Jesus was, was quite cold. And so Peter makes him his way over to a fire to warm himself up. As he gets to the fire, there's some other people around the fire as well, some servants and some officers. And he stands there for a moment and they all start to look at Peter. And then they say to him, hey, hang on a sec, aren't you one of those disciples? So here's Peter's opportunity. This is his opportunity to get it right this time, to, to make amends for how wrong he got it the first time. This is his opportunity to confess with confidence that he's a follower of Jesus, to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And so Peter looks at them, he pauses for a second or two, and with the freshness of his previous denial still lingering in his mind, he says, I don't know what you guys are talking about. That's not me. You guys must have me confused with someone else. I'm not a follower of Jesus. And within moments of the first time, he publicly denies Christ a second time. Twice within hours of each other, Peter has had two opportunities to confess his faith in Jesus. The same Jesus who's right there in the courtyard about to die in his place for his sins. And twice he's flat out denied even knowing him, let alone being associated with him. And just as Peter makes that second denial, he's about to make a third. Because after telling them that he's, he's not one of those disciples, someone else around the fire that day goes, what, what? I, I don't know, I'm not so sure. I think I saw you with Jesus. I think I saw you earlier in the olive grove. I'm pretty sure that was definitely you. And Peter, already too deep in the lie and probably afraid of what would happen to him if he now confessed the truth, denies knowing Jesus a third time. And the Bible tells us that straight after that third denial, just as Jesus said it would, a rooster began to crow. The same Peter, that the same Peter who just the day before had declared to Jesus that I'm ready to die for my faith in you, Jesus, less than 24 hours later has denied three times even knowing him. You know, I don't know if while Jesus was in that court, courtyard, he, he happened to hear that rooster crow as well. But I imagine if he did, it would have hit him pretty hard. Because it's one thing to be put on trial and falsely accused by those who don't know you, but it's another thing to be disowned by those who do. Now, I think it's important for us to recognise that before this day, Peter wasn't someone who didn't know Jesus well. Peter knew Jesus very well. Peter had been under the leadership and mentorship of Jesus for the past three years. He probably knew Jesus better than most other people. And also it's important to know that Peter wasn't someone who had zero faith. In fact, Peter was someone who at times had great faith. Peter is the only person in all of history besides Jesus who ever walked on water. And it took incredible faith for him to do that. He, he stepped out of the boat onto the water in the middle of the storm on simply one word from Jesus, come. So, so we can't look at Peter and go, well, the reason he denied Jesus is because he didn't know Jesus or he didn't have great faith. Because that's not true. He did know Jesus. He loved Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus and he'd exercised great faith. And perhaps that's what concerns me the most. 
Because if someone like Peter could get to the point where he could no longer keep his confession of Christ because of his fear of man, where does that leave us? Because it would be so easy to look at Peter, look at him and what he did and say, well, I would never do that. But can we be sure? Can we be sure? Because I reckon if, I I believe that the day before when Peter said to Jesus, I'm ready to die for you, I believe he genuinely believed that. I believe with his whole heart, he, he meant that. I don't think he was just trying to impress Jesus or look good in front of his friends. I believe from his whole heart, he believed, yes, I'm ready to die for you, Jesus. But as with many things, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to actually do it. So the question is, what happened on that day? Why did he deny knowing Jesus so quickly? Well, it seems to me that up to that point in in Peter's life, ever since he'd started following Jesus, he had always been surrounded by others who followed Jesus too. He he had always been surrounded by a few others who who believed what he did, who supported what he believed in, who, who had the same, the heart, for Jesus as he did, who encouraged it. And it seems that as long as he found himself surrounded by others who believed what he did, then his confession of Christ was bold, it was confident and it was sure. But the moment he found himself outside alone, the moment he found himself in a place where his confession in Christ wasn't supported, and in fact could elicit a really negative response towards him, all of a sudden his faith wasn't as sure. Because what Peter discovered and what Jesus already knew is that confessing to know Christ on a Monday isn't always as easy as confessing to know him on a Sunday. See, it's one thing to confess to know Christ in here, It's another thing to confess to know Christ out there. You see, to confess to know Christ in here, it's safe. In fact, it's encouraged. In fact, it's supported. In in fact, it's it's what we we desire to, to encourage one another, stir each other on to confess our faith. It's championed. In here, our faith can be loud. It can be bold. It can be uninhibited. In here, our faith is accepted. And what an awesome blessing that is, amen? But out there, out in your workplace, out in your university, out in your school, even in your family, out there, it's not encouraged. It's not championed. It's not accepted. Out there, it's silenced. It's it's attacked on every side. In here, in here it's exciting, in here it's amazing. Out there it's scary and it's frightening. The thing is though, it's out there where there are those who need to know Christ more than anywhere else. Out there are those who need to know that there's a a God who loves them, who wants to connect with them, who wants to forgive them and give them eternal life. And the way that God has chosen to reach them is through you and I. 
2 Corinthians 5.18 says, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to Himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to Him. So if this is the case then, if this is the case, well, we need to find something. We need to find something that can help us push past the fear that we come up against out there so that we can do what we're called to do. We can reach who we're called to reach, amen? Because the one thing I know, and listen to me when I say this, church, it's not gonna get any easier. If anything, it's only gonna get harder and harder. Which means that if we don't find a way to find what we need to overcome that fear, a lot of people are gonna get lost. So here's the question we wanna answer today. How can we develop a faith that stands up in the face of our fears? How can we develop a faith that stands up in the face of our fears? Well, someone might say, well, you just need to exercise more boldness. You just need to be more bold, more courageous, and just just push past it with all of your might. You need to exercise boldness. And I I understand that. I mean, it it makes sense, doesn't it? If it's it's fear that holds us back, well, then boldness will push us through. But I wanna suggest to you something a little bit different today, maybe even something that's a little bit surprising. I wanna suggest that the way we develop a faith that stands up in the face of our fears isn't by getting more boldness, but it's actually by getting more fear. The key to us keeping our confession of Christ outside of the church, in our workplace, in our universities, in our families, in our everyday lives, isn't found in getting more boldness, it's actually found in getting more fear. Now, right about now, you're like, what on earth is he talking about? (laughs) So let me show you what I mean. Hebrews 12, verse 28, it says this, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping Him with holy fear and awe. Holy fear and awe. You know, in church, we, we often preach messages to help us overcome fear to eradicate fear out of our life. We, we quote scriptures such as 2 Timothy 1.7, we say, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. We quote scriptures such as 1 John 4.18 that says, perfect love casts out all fear because God doesn't want us to live in fear. He doesn't want us to live bound by fear because He knows how debilitating that be. He wants us to live in freedom. He wants us to live in victory. He wants us to be all with God He's created us to be. And so that, those messages and that encouragement is important. But I wanna tell you today, there is a fear that God doesn't want to eradicate out of your life. There is a fear that He wants each of us to walk in. There is a fear, in fact, that He wants us to grow in each and every day. And it is a healthy fear of Him. So when I say in order to overcome fear, we need more fear. I'm not suggesting that we need a greater fear of man, I'm suggesting we need a greater fear of God. Because it's only once you have a greater fear of God will you then find the ability to overcome the fear of man. Because where an unhealthy fear of man causes you to shrink back, a healthy fear of God causes you to be able to stand up. 
Now, before we go any further, I think it's important to explain what does it mean to fear God? Because I don't want us to get the wrong idea. So let me first explain what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to be scared of God. It doesn't mean to be afraid or frightened of God. That is the last thing he would want. He doesn't want any of us to be afraid or scared of him because he knows what you're afraid of, it's very difficult to have a loving relationship with. And he's done everything possible. He sent his son to die upon the cross, to take our sins upon himself, to shed his blood in our place so that we could have an intimate relationship with him. So he doesn't want us to be scared or afraid of him. So to fear God doesn't mean to be scared of God. But rather to fear God means to stand in absolute awe of God. It means to hold Him in such reverence that you can't help to, but to worship Him at all times with all of your being and the thought of doing anything else seems impossible. In the wilderness, you remember the time in the wilderness where Jesus is in the wilderness and for 40 days and 40 nights, He's fasting and then the devil comes to tempt him. Satan comes to tempt him. In one of those temptations, Satan says to him, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And in response to that temptation, Jesus says this in Matthew 4.10. He says, away from me, Satan, for it, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Now, when Jesus says that, He's quoting Deuteronomy 6 verse 13, which says, fear the Lord your God and serve Him only. So Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Deuteronomy says, fear the Lord your God and serve Him only. Notice how Jesus is, is swapping out fear for worship. What He's saying is as New Testament believers, to fear God means to worship God to worship Him with all of your being, to have such a reverence and awe for Him that you can't help but to worship Him at all times, under all challenges, under all trials. So Matthew chapter 10, perhaps the keys can join me, the team can get ready. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus has gathered together 12 his 12 disciples and he's with the intention of commissioning them and preparing them for the ministry that they're gonna embark on and be thrust into. And in preparation for their ministry of the 12 disciples, Jesus starts sharing with them what they can expect to face as they share the good news. He tells them how they'll be persecuted at every level of government. He shares with them how they will face floggings and imprisonment and severe spiritual opposition. He makes it very clear with his disciples that when they go out and preach the good news that people will reject them harshly, maybe even those most close to them. And he tells them that all this will be because of the message of hope that you carry. And so he paints a very honest but quite grim picture of what they can expect as they're sharing the good news. And then he says to them this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. He says, but don't be afraid of those who threaten you. For the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. What I tell you now in the darkness, shout abroad when daylight breaks. What I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops for all to hear. He's saying, don't don't keep the confession of your faith silent. Don't worry or be fearful of man, but shout it out. And then in verse 28, he says, 
Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. Talking about man, they cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Notice what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, when you share the message, when you confess your faith, confess to be a follower of me, don't be afraid of what other people think or what other people say or how other people react. Don't be afraid of them because they have nothing against God. They don't even, they didn't even come close to who God is and what He can do and what He's about. So don't be afraid of man, but hold on to a reverence and an awe for God. And then Jesus goes on to encourage them further and He says to them in Verse 29, Matthew 10, 29, he says, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin, but not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to say, when you're out there alone and you're facing that opposition and you're standing up for me, know that I will protect you that God is right there with you. He's saying, if, if I oversee the sparrows, which at the time were one of the lowest commodities that you could buy in a market, just one small copper coin, if I oversee their life, imagine how I oversee your life because you're worth far more than them. So as you stand up for me, trust that I'll protect you, I'll preserve you, I'll provide for you. You've got God on your side. And then He says something incredibly challenging. He says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus says to His disciples, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. He says, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Church, the only fear that God ever wants us to have is a healthy fear of Him. Because He knows that a healthy fear of Him has the power to eradicate an unhealthy fear of God, of man out of our life. You know, last week we spoke about the Apostle Paul and we talked about how he faced many trials and tribulations in serving the Lord, but he also faced a lot of persecution. And in 2 Corinthians, he tells us how he continued to share the good news of Jesus Christ, knowing that, would, that it would possibly lead to even more persecution. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 5.11, he says, it is because of this solemn fear of the Lord, which is ever present in our minds, that we work so hard to win others. He said, because I had a fear and awe, a reverence for God, it kept me professing and declaring my faith regardless of what that meant would come against me. Church, if we're to make a difference in our world, if we are 
to outwork the call of God upon our life, if we're to reach who we need to reach, then we need a fresh fear, awe, and reverence of God. David and team can join me. David in Psalm 86, he's writing a prayer out to God. And he says in Psalm 86, 11, he says, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk and live in your truth. He says, direct my heart to fear your name with awe-inspired reverence and submissive wonder. David's prayer was, direct my heart to have a fear, an awe and a wonder for you, God, so that I'm not held back by the fear of man so that I'm able to outwork the call on my life, that I'm able to serve You and honour You. You know, that needs to be our prayer every day too. Direct my heart to have a healthy fear of You, God, to be willing to lay down my life for my trust in You. You know that Jesus laid down His life for us. Jesus, when He had the opportunity to to say, no, I'm not doing it. When He had the opportunity to, to pull back, He didn't, He went all in. And we didn't even deserve it. And yet He deserves it all. And sometimes we pull back. But when you have a healthy fear of God, when you have a reverence and an awe, when all of your being is in worship to Him and you understand as Romans 12 tells us that the the way that we thank God is to offer our bodies as a, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. That is our true and proper worship. You realise that, that even if I have to lay down my life, it doesn't come close to what He's given me. And sure, yes, man can come against us and man can take our life, but it just gets us to heaven earlier. He's saying, if you wanna fear, fear God. Is the power over the, our physical and our soul. You know, sometimes, sometimes we, a lot of the time when we come to church, it, it's, uh, it's about us. It's about what we need or what God can do for us and, and us being encouraged and us being touched and us receiving something from God. And I, I love that. And I think God loves that too. But sometimes it's also got to be about Him. Sometimes it's got to be about what we can do for Him and how we worship Him and how we honour Him for what He's done for us. Otherwise we get unbalanced. Otherwise we all become consumeristic and God just like, it's about me, God, help me, God. And God's saying, help me, help me. There's people out there who need to know life. There's people out there that need to know what you need, what you have got where you get to live in each and every day. And and, and if we have a fear of man, we're not gonna be as effective as we could be. So He said, develop a healthy fear of me and it will give you what you need to overcome that fear so we can reach more with His love and grace, amen. I pray this sermon has blessed you, encouraged you and inspired you. You know, we may never have met, I may not know you, but God knows you. And I'll tell you today, God loves you. That even before you knew about Him, He loved you and He has a plan and a purpose for your life. You know, so many of us do life on our own, trying to lead our life in a way that finds answers and finds the peace and finds the joy we're looking for, but we come up short. But God knew that you needed rescuing, that you needed saving, that you needed His love. 
So he sent his son Jesus to come and pay the price for our mistakes. He lived a perfect life, but knowing we couldn't, he said, I will take their place. So he died and rose again so that his death could pay the penalty for my mistakes and my past and his life could make a way so that I could have life. I believe that when you believe in what Jesus did and when you invite him to be Lord of your life, you can experience forgiveness, peace, hope, joy, purpose and life like you've never known before. It's not about what we've done or who we're not. It's about that we have a God who's good, who can turn things for good and loves you. He's a father, he's a friend, and you can invite him into your life today by simply saying this prayer after me. I'm gonna say this prayer and wherever you are, wherever you're watching around the world, pray this prayer with me. Maybe you once knew God and you walked away. You know what, maybe he's getting your attention today to say, come back into relationship with me. Maybe you've known religion, but never a real genuine relationship with God. Why don't you say this prayer too? And I believe this can be the beginning of a great new day. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for loving me and giving your life for me. I pray you forgive me for my past and you walk with me into my tomorrow. Let me know your grace, your forgiveness, your peace, your purpose, your joy and your hope into my life. I ask you to lead me and guide me from this day forward. Be Lord of who I am in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm so glad you prayed that prayer today. I believe that as you did, the peace, the grace, and the love of God comes into your life. You know what? The past is real, but it doesn't have to dictate your future. Let the love, the grace, and the Word of God go with you from this day forward, and I believe the best days are ahead for you. If you prayed this prayer or you want to know more, maybe you're on the journey, why don't you flick us an email so we can send you some material about following Jesus. We can maybe connect you with a local church near you that you can do life with, get good people around you, and we would love to pray with you. I'm so glad you prayed that prayer. I'm so glad you're on the journey of following Jesus. I'm so glad you listened today. God bless.